So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there are sermon notes in the bulletin. Verse 50 is where we're going to be starting as we're coming back to our text. Last week, obviously, we had Mother's Day, wonderful breakfast, wonderful service. Now we're back into 1 Corinthians 15 and dealing with a passage of Scripture that, as you see on the screen, yes, there is a resurrection for believers. And we're in verses 50 to 57. Before Mother's Day, we were just in verse 50. Um, That was the first verse. We'll do a little review of that in a second. But we will be hopefully wrapping up this next section of verses 50 to 57. As we come to this text, I said two weeks ago, if you weren't here, that this has one of the nicest blessings in all of Scripture. One of the nicest. Number one was you get saved. Number two, you get to have saved family come with us. But then this other one is going to give you something that is really one of the most exciting, best blessings ever that you can have besides getting to heaven. So we'll get there in a second. But as you can tell, I'm excited when we come to the Bible. I'm always excited when we come to the Bible. Why? It's because it's God's word. You must always, 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 always remember that this is not an ordinary book. This is not like a novel. This is not any other religious book, any other um, religion that has some type of biblical piece of literature that they have, it doesn't compare to the Bible. It's been proven, whether you're talking the Hindu scriptures, you're talking the Muslim scriptures, you're talking whatever, you know, cultish group, you know, we often, you know, the the writings of Mary Baker Eddy or, or Charles Taz Russell with the Watchtower and the Jehovah Witnesses. Listen, we need to be bold. We need to remember always that when you come to the Bible, I don't, hundreds of times, What does it say? Thus saith the Lord. It makes claims that no other book does. And this book continually gets challenged and continually meets the challenges to prove that it is the word of God. So yes, every time we open it up, there should be a level of excitement. So, all right, let me just tell you why um, I'm really excited about coming to this text. Number one is because it has the promise, the blessing, that some people will never die. Look at verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We're going to get into that in a second. But that is a euphemism, sleeping there for dying. Here's one of the greatest promises in all of the Bible, that some people will not have to physically die. And I said, billions of people in all of human history have died. They've gone through death, and they they have experienced that trauma. And that's why I said last time, and I say it again, there are people who pray, now I lay me down to sleep, and with the hope that they could die in their sleep. Why? Because they're afraid of death. Nobody wants to really physically go through death. But the reality of it is, is that some people may never die. It was interesting, this past week, I went and heard Larry Overstreet speak, professor, he was a professor at Grace Theological Seminary for the longest time, and he was speaking on prophecy on Monday at the IFCA Northern, Northern Regional, and what he talked about was this very passage, one of the many passages he looked at was this one, and he's 80 years old, this man skydived, he, this man has done all kinds of, of um, ministry for years, pastor churches, written books, and, and he's, he's so faithful, and yet he said, boy, I sure hope this is true of me, <laughs> that I don't have to die. 
And I thought, how interesting. And we've been talking about this is, this is coming up to this week. And the fact that, you know, how many of us would love to be able to experience it? It's interesting that Alicia did this thing on um, um, uh, Bill Curry, who was part of the um, uh, AMF at that time, American Messianic Fellowship. That's what it was named. He, when he was pastoring here, he used to tell his people back in the 70s, I'm sure hoping that I don't ever have to die. I can go through the rapture. So I'd be kind of curious, how many of you want this as well as a blessing for yourself? Because you think about it, no pain, no suffering, no harm coming to you, no more aging, no more illness, no dealing with bad things happening to you. Boom, you're just changed. Oh my goodness, what a blessing. And all of that on top of the fact that Jesus comes back. So, well... My hope is that this is something that motivates you to try to understand this and then to long for it. Did you guys know there's a crown, that there is a reward, according to the Apostle Paul, for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ? Well, you can incorporate this into that. I love Jesus because I'm looking forward to him coming back, and I want him to change me so that I don't have to face death. So that's number one. That's part of this text and in the sense that we're not going to have to deal with death. And there's a lot of people that fear death. There's a famous celebrity, I've, I've quoted him before, and he said that, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't fear death. I just don't want to be there when it comes, <laughs> you know? And so um, that was sort of like a joke, but here's a nicer joke. What did the calendar say? What did the calendar say on its deathbed? My days are numbered. A calendar, okay. And the reason I point that out is because God tells us to number our days. Do you guys ever think about it that believers are told to think about death? Unbelievers don't think about death. Unbelievers live their lives as if they're not going to die. Do you hear that? The, the Psalms, God says, number your days because you are going to die. And because you're going to die, you are going to face God. You're going to have to answer for your life. You're going to have to deal with what you did with your life. The unbeliever, oh, I'm not going to die. Party it up. Live it up. But nothing's going to happen to me. Oh, but if I die, I die. That's the end. No. Number your days. Think about death because you need to present to him what? A heart of wisdom. The person that was aware of what was going on. And so I like this fact that it tells us to start thinking about death. In fact, we can miss death. But the second thing I really like about this passage is there's a lot of new things that even I've learned, and I think you'll learn a few things as we go through this text. And, and I was going through this text, and I said, wow, that's new, that's new, and I'll try to point those out for me. And you say, wait a second, Pastor, you're learning? Yes, absolutely. I want you to always remember, this is why when you open up this book, it should never be boring to you. You continually come to this as if you got a, a cup and you were scooping out water out of the ocean. Do you think you could scoop water out of the ocean and exhaust the ocean? This is our God. He's an eternal God. It's amazing the amount of truth that is in this book. Again, not an ordinary book. So look at our context. Um, remember chapter 12, chapter 15, verse 12 if Christ is preached, he's been raised from the dead, how does some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And the Apostle Paul, in verses 13 to 19, 13 through 19, gave a series of rhetorical responses. And here, here's something I learned this week. 
Do you know that 75% of the time a rhetorical answer is given in the Bible, it is to convey information? Think about that. So when you start hearing, oh, that's a rhetorical response, that you start thinking, what was trying to be conveyed? Um, like, like when Jesus says, how much longer do you think I'm going to be with you? It's like it was trying to convey, I'm not going to be with you much longer. Okay? So that's just a side note. But then when we came to the big picture, I said from verses 20 to 58, the Apostle Paul, is, he wants to get believers to understand, yes, there is a resurrection. And so he goes through these five big reasons, and those are on your sermon notes. And I've kept those on the front page for the past few months because I want you to understand how you study things in context. The order of the resurrections guarantees it. Then the testimonies of other believers validate it. And then we went into the fact that the glorified body description makes sense. Remember, there was no command in that section. But now we've come to this section. The rapture is a possibility. So let's look at verse 50. And it says this, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. Verse 53, for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and the mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will put on Im the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so... What we have here is that the rapture, this event that where we believe Jesus is coming back for the church, is one of the ways that we should understand how believers are going to get a resurrected body. And so we're going to get into the next reason in a, in next week about the conclusion, but let's, let's talk about this. The rapture is a possibility. The rapture is a possibility. And when we, we come to this section... I said this is like getting on the fast lane on the freeway. You know, you get on the freeway, you can, you can get either into the right um, two lanes and you can just go close to the speed limit and you can just travel along. And so there's some of us that do that, all right? But there are some of you that un get on that freeway and you go to the far left lanes. And when you go into the fast lanes on the freeway, it's intense and you've got to be able to handle Cars coming, sometimes f even faster than you're going, right? I, I mean, I, I drove down to Chicago a couple times this past week, and you got people, and I'm just going to say morons, because they're going like 120 miles an hour. Like, who, who you know, obviously, you know, you've you got a mindset that you think you can um, ex able to handle scooting in and out, and you're not going to cause an accident. I mean, obviously, we all want to be obeying the speed limit, right? But I realize some of you don't, and, and, it's, and we all sometimes cross that and go over. But the reality of it is, is when we come to this text, what I'm trying to get you to understand 
is you have to understand there is more intensity in this scripture. Because number one, I've got to keep you all focused on what the main purpose of this text is. Number two, we're going to bring in the kingdom of God. Because look at verse 15. It says, now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And that's why we did this study, okay, that, you know, okay, as we're getting these resurrected bodies without dying, and we get right into the kingdom with it, well, what do we understand about the kingdom? Well, the kingdom, we said, is a literal future event. And then we said this, it will have people in different bodies to start. Now, what in the world is this? What in the world are, are you talking about? Well, we were talking about the fact that church believers go in in glorified bodies. This text is about church people, all right? People who are in Christ. And at this point, you say, wait, are, are you telling me they're going to be in the initial part of the kingdom um, that there are going to be people in glorified bodies, and then you're going to have believers from the tribulation in non-glorified bodies? And I say, yes. And some people will say, Mike, that makes no sense at all. And this is what I want to, one thing that I think is new, and you should understand this, is, look, when we study the Bible using what's called the grammatical historical approach, we study it and we read it, and we don't then change things that we don't like. So we read Isaiah 65, and it talks about the coming kingdom, and it has people dying at the age of 100. And you say, well, how, how could you have a kingdom but people dying at the age of 100? Does it make sense? And then you come to the fact that Jesus returns, and that's Revelation chapter 20, and it's this thousand-year reign, and at the end of it, millions of people die. Well, what in the world is all that about? Well, that's what we believe is this description where church believers are going to go into this thousand-year reign and people that came out of the tribulation that got saved in non-glorified bodies will be in there too. And they'll have babies and those babies will sometimes, some of them will grow up and be unbelievers. And you say, Mike, that's confusing. It doesn't make sense. And guess what? One of the things you have to learn sometimes is that we've got to accept things that, that don't make sense and we've got to fit it together. It's interesting, we had, again, the fact that Alicia was talking about um, a ministry to the Jews, because I was reading information about the Jews and, and, and their history, and here's a new fact I learned this week. Do you know ancient Jewish writings, they thought that there were two, if not three, messiahs? You think, what are you talking about? Because they read the same passages in Isaiah, that talk about a victorious Messiah. And then he'd read other passages that talked about a defeated Messiah. And they would say, well, obviously we can't have one Messiah doing both. So there has to be two. There were even Jewish writers who said there were perhaps is three because it looks like the, one Messiah is coming from, from Bethlehem and another one's coming from, like, Nazareth. So we got to have at least three. Well, instead of saying we got to work it all together... They just threw up their hands. And again, this is why I point this out. I'm taking this time, so I don't want you to be confused. When we come to this passage, and you look at verse 50, I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I believe he's talking to the church at this point. And when he gets to the point where we're talking about death, we're talking about the church and death ending. Eventually, death is going to end for every, everybody. I got that. But 
based upon what I'm seeing in the scriptures is that there's a transition when it's going to be partially ended for some and not for others. And, and, and I'm going to say, well, here's how I fit it together. So when we talk, though, about this kingdom, we talked about Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 and 45, that it's like the pearl of great price, the treasure that is hidden in the field. This has to be the number one thing. This has to be the number one thing. If you were to leave today without knowing that you're born again and that you're going into the kingdom, then I feel for you. It is the number one thing that you need to do every day. God, make sure. I want to make sure I'm born again. I want to make sure that I'm going to heaven. You know, because this is the greatest end that anybody can have. The best ending and should be the only ending. So here we go, all right? So when we come to verse 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery, all right? So in verse 50, he's told us that there's the people have to have a, a translation. They have to have um, not flesh and blood. And so that has to be the church because we, again, said there are people that are in flesh and blood, regular humans that are dying. But for the church, if we're going to go into the kingdom, we cannot be in flesh and blood. So he says, but I tell you a mystery. Behold! Behold is like, hey, I get your attention. A mystery is I'm going to tell you a secret. Um, whenever you study this word mystery, I think it's used 27 times in the New Testament alone. It's basically a secret. And I always emphasize this because so many pastors try to explain this, and I think it gives you like confused as if it is like some type of, of, of nuanced word that we don't use in our English language. This is no different than if I'm going to watch tonight on the Hallmark Station a murder mystery. And I watch that murder mystery show, and I watch that show, and at the end, guess what? I know who did it, right? But I would still say I watched a mystery. This is what that word is. It's, just, it's, a, it's something that was one time a secret. And here's the interesting thing. What was once a secret? Because, you know, if I tell my wife, hey, I got a secret, I got to tell you, once I tell her, is it still a secret? Yeah, because there's only a few people that should know it. But at one time it was not known by perhaps anybody. So that's this idea here. When he says, I got to tell you something that nobody ever knew. And, and what he's going to talk about is when he says, we will not all sleep. And sleep is a euphemism for dying. We're not going to take the time. We've done it. First Thessalonians 4 is a great example of where that is used again in verses 13 to 18. The idea of sleep being equated to death. We will not all die. This is where that great promise comes in. He says, we're not all going to die, but we're all going to be changed. Changed, transformed. He uses a Greek word in the future passive Someone is going to do this. Someone's going to take us, and they're going to transform us. And what we believe is that this is the event called the rapture. The rapture is an event that was a mystery. If you go into the Old Testament, where are you going to find it? You're not going to find it anywhere because it's a mystery. If you go into the Old Testament, it's like in Ephesians chapter 3, where the church is called the mystery, you're going to find the church? No. No. You're not going to find the church in the Old Testament. And so what this event that's described only in the New Testament, that's described in 1 Thessalonians 4, 
1 Corinthians 15 here kind of alluded to in, in, in the consequences in John 14 is this event called the rapture. You see this word? And what this chart is, and people say, well, you got your charts. Well, this is what I'm just trying to piece everything together, is this is that there was a decree in Daniel that there'd be 483 year, 490 years that were given to the Jewish people. 69 weeks, so the 70 of the first 483 until Jesus came. And now we're in this what's called the church age. And the Bible talks about what's called, coming called the 70th week. And right here, unbeknownst to us, is a time when Jesus Christ is going to come back for the church. And he's going to seize us off the air, off the ground, meet us in the air, and then take us back to heaven. Behold, I tell you, you know, Jesus says, you know, in my father's house there are many mansions. That, that's where this comes in. And the idea is, is that Jesus takes us to heaven. Because remember, heaven comes to earth. But this passage in John 14 that everybody talks about, about God, you know, he's got these mansions for us in, that, in, in, in heaven is when that's when we go and we have the rooms in heaven and we wait for the tribulation to end and then we come back, all right? So there's this idea is that when this happens, what God is doing is he's done with the church and his original plan to work with Israel all kicks off in what we understand is the tribulation, the seal, the trumpet, and the bull judgments. So in verse 51, he says, I tell you something that nobody's ever known before. Nobody's ever known before. So, you know, someone comes and they challenges you and say, well, I don't find this in Isaiah. I don't find this in Daniel. Guess what? It's a mystery. It's a mystery. You're not going to find the rapture in the Old Testament. You're not going to find the church in the Old Testament because both of them are mysteries. So when we come to verse 52, all right, we begin this idea of, of giving us more information about this event called the rapture. So he says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. So the word moment there begins to tell us that what we have here, what we have is something that happens fast. It, it, it's, it's an atom of a time. And so you, you can't even like divide it. The twinkling of an eye. Did anybody just blink? When you blink, did it obscure your vision at all? No, because a blink is so fast, you don't even have your vision obscured. All right? So that's what he's saying. And what am I supposed to do with this? What am I supposed to do with this? Is the idea is, is that I'm supposed to realize if this is going to happen so fast, I can't prepare for it. And that's what I want you to start thinking. So we say the rapture, it was once a secret. And number two, what we're seeing here is that some believers never die but directly receive new bodies. It is when all Christians get their new bodies, and it is something that happens fast. It happens fast. So you look at it, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, not everybody's going to die, we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, but here you see that line, at the last trumpet. Well, last is the Greek word eska, from which we derive eschatology, the study of last, time, the last, uh, last, last things. 
what do you mean the last trumpet? Shouldn't this be at the end? Hey, Mike, go back to your chart when you, you know, you, you have the end of the tribulation and you have eternity kick in. Isn't that the last trumpet? Well, in the Bible, there's a lot of trumpets. And I think that this trumpet isn't the trumpets of the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. This isn't necessarily... Uh, uh, any other trumpet other than to say that it is the trumpet that ends the church. It's the last trumpet for the church. And, and so I, I see when it says in verse 52, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed, is that he's talking about the end of the church age. And so using terminology that he saw up in verse four, used up in verse 42, look at verse 42. Talking about the resurrection of the dead, it is sown a perishable body. A perishable body is a body that rots and raised an imperishable body. A body that will never rot, never decay, never get old. And, and this is what we all want. We, we never want to age. We never want to face death. We never want to face illness. We never want to have anything bad come to us. And so he tells us that at this, t at, at this experience, that there's an experience where people are going to go through and they're going to get, in essence, their resurrection body. And he says in verse 53, for this perishable must put on the imperishable and the mortal must put on immortality. The idea of must, I think, again, goes back about who goes into the kingdom, who doesn't. Those terminologies are words that we've seen already, imperishable, mortal, uh, the idea that it never dies. And it's unfathomable to us that we can think of something that will never die. But this is what God is promising and telling us and saying that we can have all of this. And so what we have to recognize, if you have your sermon notes, you fill it in, this happens as the last event for the church. Dead Christians will participate. Um, imperishable and immortal bodies for believers. And so I'm just trying to take these facts and put, the, put all of this together. And it ends death for people who are in the church. How do I know that? Well, let's look. Verse 54 but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, okay, when, goes into timing, this mortal will have put on immortality, which he's kind of already said, and he says, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death is the idea of ending life, and the idea of being swallowed as if you were taking it in, and I believe the one taking it in is God, and this is a quote from Isaiah 25, where Isaiah was talking about what God's going to do in the future and how he's going to bless everyone as he brings the kingdom into to Israel. And so death is swallowed up in victory. And the word for victory is the word from which we get, um, in English, the word Nike. Nike is the Greek word for victory. And so using the apparel company, the tennis shoe company, the sports equipment company, every time you see it, I want you to think of victory, the victory that Christians are going to have. And so... Here's this declaration that death is one day going to end, which is mind-boggling because all we know is death. All we know are people that die. We, you know, read the obituary page, and I picked it up this morning, and it was like three, four pages this morning. I was amazed how many people were listed as people who had died in our community. And just as a side note, well, I don't guess I know side note. The, the idea is, is that we're always facing death. And here is when death ends for the church. And so I think it's fascinating when you, he, he quotes, he quotes um, Isaiah. It's, it's almost a pretty straightforward quote. 
um, that he says death is swallowed up in victory. He changes it and makes it a passive. That, that, that's just a little technical thing that you may or may not um, get excited about. What I got excited about and where I thought was really interesting was verse 55. This is a passage of scripture that is quoted over and over at funerals. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And if I could just take a side note here, this is, this is a passage that's quoting Hosea chapter 13. And I'll tell you, this shows you the inspiration of God. This shows you the genius of the way the Old Testament is used in the New Testament. Because this is where the Apostle Paul like, could have been reading Hosea and said, now follow this, wow, that's a really cool line. That sounds really good. And I'm going to use it in something totally different. And now, I, 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 let me just show you. Go back to the book of Hosea, minor prophet. Hosea, remember, has to, is a prophet and um, has problems with his wife, we'll just say that. Um, when you come to Hosea, he's writing around 730, 740 B.C., and he's writing to the northern tribes. And, and uh, he, he is warning them and telling them that their time has come. And when you come to chapter 13, he is calling the northern tribes Ephraim. All right? And, and so it's sort of a way that God can tell, can talk to Israel, northern Israel. Because remember, Israel's divided at this time. You have Israel and Judah. And so Judah is the name of the main tribe. There were two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin. And they just got the name Judas, Judah. Sometimes you have to understand that the northern 10 tribes were just called Ephraim. And, and so look, verse 1 of chapter 13. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He exalted himself in Israel. But through Baal he did wrong and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves molten images, idols skillfully made from their silver. All of them work of craftsmen. They say of themselves, let the men who sacrifice kill, kiss the calves, like the golden calves, Okay. Therefore, they will be like the morning cloud and the dew which soon disappears, like chaff which is blown away from the threshing floor and like smoke from a chimney. Verse 4, yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were, you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. Which you got to stop and you talk about learning about God. This is God's heart. God could have just said, I'm going to wipe you out, but he's trying to explain express his heart. It's almost like, you know, a husband and wife are having a divorce, or going, and one of them saying, look, I love you. I care for you. I want to be there instead of just walking out on one of them. It's, it's like God, in this relational book, which Hosea is, is like trying to express, this is how much I cared for you. And so learn from this. This is the kind of God we have. We don't have a cold-hearted God. But yet, watch what happens here. And he says, Verse 6, as they had their pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. So I will be like a lion to them, like a leopard. I will lie in wait by the wayside. 
I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her, her, her cubs and, and will tear open their chest and they will devour them like a lioness as a wild beast would tear them. I mean, the line is crossed and this is the thing I always try to warn everybody. There comes a time when God says enough and judgment is coming. And it could happen in an individual life and I don't know when that happens. But you play around, you play around, you play around, you know the right thing to do and you don't do it and finally God says enough and I'm just going to take you out. So but here, this is, uh, this is it. Ephraim, I've loved you, I've cared for you, but enough's enough. Game's over. And so, verse 9, It is your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. Where now is your king that he may save you in all your cities and your judges of whom you requested? Give me a king and prince. Because God knew that when they were asking for the king and the prince and whatever, that, that they weren't really asking for him. And he's saying, okay, you got yours, now let him deliver you. I will give you a king in my anger, and I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is stored up. The pains of childbirth come upon him. He is not a wise son. Wow. For it is not the time that he should delay at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? Now here, here's our quote. O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Sheol is like the spiritual world for the dead. Wait, do you understand what he says? And then he says, compassion will be hidden from my sight. O death, where, are you, where, is, you know, where is your thorns? O, o Sheol, where is your sting? It's like basically what he's saying is, I'm bringing judgment. Where is it? It's, it's delaying too long. It's delaying too long. And I, and I point this out because Paul reads this and recognizes that God uses these terms. And he says, I like these. I like this. And I like it. And it's an interesting in the sense that God is saying enough's enough. I'm waiting, for, I'm waiting for judgment to come. I want death to come. I want it to bring its sting. Where is it? I want it. I want Ephraim to get his. But now, out of an incredible picture of redemption... Now turn back to 1 Corinthians 15 and understand when verse 55 is used, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? The apostle Paul has ripped that from Hosea and said, you're done, death. He's like, where, where Ephraim was being chided, now death is the one being chided by the very same words. And I tell you, you gotta love scripture. This is where it's incredible use of literature and the way God speaks. And let us not just be people that don't read the Bible and appreciate it for the incredible piece of wisdom it is in literature and the way God writes. So that, that was a free one. And I just thought, wow, I've got to share that because that gets me excited. So then he says the sting of death is sin because why, why does he say in verse 56 the sting of death is sin? Because the wage of sin brings death. The only reason people die is because they sin. And, and, and the reality of it is even infants are born into sin. And this is why everybody needs Jesus. One sin sends you to hell. One sin sends you to death, which includes two parts, a physical part and a spiritual part. And the spiritual part is called the second death. And it's a place called the lake of fire. And it's a place that is irreversible and needs to be preached and needs to be understood. We sang a song about basically being at God's feet today. And it's one I hope that moved your heart today because there should be a constant, constant reality that sin brings death and death is a permanent thing, physical as well as spirit, spiritual in the sense the spiritual part is what's irreversible in the sense that you cannot get out of hell once you go there. 
And my goodness, when we understand what Jesus has done for us, we're thinking, oh, this is why I need to be at his feet. I need to be so thankful. So verse 56, the, sin, the sting of sin is death, and the power of sin is the law. And, and, and my Bible has law, lowercase, but I think that's the Old Testament law. I think it should be capital L. I think that's the law. I, I think this ties into passages in Romans where Paul talks about the law, you know, the 613 commandments that reveals our sin, which would include the 10 commandments. So the power of it is, is here's God's instructions, and none of us can do it. Because the reality of it is, is when it's, God says, love us, God, you know, you're to have no other gods, we do set up other things that we worship. When God says, don't, you know, don't um, commit adultery, we do lust. When God says, you know, don't lie or don't deceive, we do lie and we tell lies. And so the reality of it is as much as we want to do the right thing, the power of sin in our flesh is overwhelming. And, and sadly, even as believers, we get a remnant of that and, it's, and, and we struggle with it. And so Paul is saying basically all of this stuff is going to be done with so that's why verse 57 goes into this, but thanks be to God. This is sort of a praise. It's an incredible worship who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this incredible reality where this whole argument is, yeah, we're going to get this resurrected body through what's called the rapture, but let us not forget how this process came about. The thanks be to God is God the Father, you should note that, who gives us the victory, the Nike, through Lord, the one who's God in charge, Lord, Jesus, person, human, Christ, Messiah. Lord Jesus Christ. And so we know that it was him who died on the cross and paid the penalty for sin. And so we give him, we give him the incredible recognition. And that's what he's trying to do there. So I'm trying to get my notes here. What, what we have here is when it's all said and done, what do we end up with? What do we end up with? Do believers get a resurrection body? Absolutely. And, and some of us might get it by never having to die. R.H. Linsky in his commentary said this, death is not merely destroyed so that it cannot do further harm while all of the harm which it has brought on God's children remains. And what he's saying is, is when God is going to end this for us, it's going to end it completely for us. And so he goes on to say, the tornado was not merely checked so that no additional homes are wrecked well, those that were wrecked still lie in ruin. You ever see a tornado? It comes through, and then, you know, some homes destroyed, some not. And what God is going to do, he's going to stop the tornado, and if any homes were destroyed, he, he repairs them all. We are all people of broken lives. Incredibly, he wipes away every tear, every pain, every sorrow, everything that I've gone through in this life and everything that you go through, everything that you go through when you put your head on the pillow and you say, not another day where I've got to go and deal with this and I've got to wake up in the morning and it's going to be one of my first thoughts. Everything will be taken away. Death, where is your sting? <laughs> you know, where is, you know, where is, oh, death, where is your victory? And, and oh, death, where is your sting? It's gone. This is going to be incredible. This is why we need to be people who worship God and just so thankful. And so I get it. Death is no joke, people. And I never want us to think of it as a joke. Um, I want us to be thinking about the fact that we get to go into this kingdom. This is a passage that allows us to think about the kingdom, the rapture, and all of these wonderful concepts that all come into this one text. And so what does it do impact us? Look at, again at verse 52. 
in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. So fast, so quickly this can happen. And this is why I want to challenge all of you on this day. You don't have time to prepare for this. This is now when you need to prepare. If Jesus could come back at 1 o'clock this afternoon, don't drive home and tell your wife off in the car. Don't be rude to the kids. Don't be someone that loses your temper. Don't be someone that gets lost forgetting where we're going. Any moment, any time. This is why I think God gives this to us. He wants us to remember that we need to be holy people. We need to go into Monday thinking, today could be the last day. I, I shouldn't steal. I shouldn't be lazy. There, you know, uh, Alicia gave us things to do about maybe pray for, for um, life and Messiah. Maybe I should take five minutes and pray for them. Because, you know, when I answer to God, he's going to say, what did you do today? Well, you know, I, I, played, I played for two hours on my video game. Here, you want to see what I can do on my phone? You know, Candy Crush, look at how many things I won. You mean you couldn't take that, take 10, 20 minutes out of your Candy Crush game and, and pr play a little, pray a little bit, do a little bit? You have to understand, when God says in verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, this is going to come quickly, fast. You aren't going to have time to prepare. This is why if you look at this today and you say, well, okay, then I've got to start having a mindset of readiness, appropriateness. I've got to be ready because at any moment, any time, I, want, I might meet Jesus. And if it's that way, then, boy, it sh sure would be hard if all of a sudden I got raptured and I was doing something inappropriate. And now I've got to, you know, be in shame. And we've talked about shame. So, look, whether it's the way a husband treats a wife, a wife treats her husband, children obey their parents, you living a holy life, you witnessing, you giving, this rapture can happen at any time, any second. And you never know if Jesus is coming today. And in an instant, in a twinkle of an eye. And I look forward to it. I want it to come. And I hope you do too. And I'm just asking that you're all ready. Remember, we've been saying, people, let's keep this simple. The ABCs of salvation. Like we teach children the alphabet. A, admit you're a sinner. Recognize that one sin, the way you think, the way you speak, the way you act, and your sins of omission. Things that you're supposed to do but you're not doing. Are, you're going to be held accountable. And I always say, you know, someone says, well, I don't do anything wrong. You don't do anything good. You didn't pray this week. You didn't witness. You didn't do any scripture reading. You didn't do anything good this week. Those are sins, people. When you have opportunity to share the gospel, and you keep your mouth shut, when you don't pray, you don't read, I mean, God's going to say, look, yeah, you didn't murder anybody. You didn't do this evil thing, but you didn't do anything good. Sins of omission are serious. So many people are going to be surprised by their sins of omission. One sin keeps you from heaven. The only answer is Jesus. Believe. A, admit you're a sinner. B, believe. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that he's God and man who died to, to pay the penalty of sin. That he rose from the dead. And on the third day, when he rose from the dead, he was showing that the payment was received by God the Father. And that reception today means that if we place our faith in him, we can have eternal life and we can be born again. We can know that we have, we have eternal life. So you need to believe, and believe is not a one-time act, it's a lifetime act, and it's a, like a trust. If I jump out of a plane with a parachute, I'm trusting in that chute. 
You've got to trust in Jesus. You've got to trust that his way is the right way. You can't pick and choose. You can't pick and choose. I was told this week somebody wants to pick and choose. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live this kind of way as a Christian and this way the rest of the world. No, you can't pick and choose. You can't pick and choose. And then C, call upon his name. Whoever calls upon his name will not be disappointed. Is that something that you've done today? And if it is, it's amazing. If you do, it's even do it just right now. Jesus Christ can come back right now and you could be in heaven with him. Faster than you just blinked. Isn't that amazing? Are you ready for that blink? Are you ready for the last time you take a breath on this earth? Do you know Jesus Christ? I sometimes wonder, I look around and I sit and I think, I just blinked, could this be it? Maybe today, maybe today. Let's pray. Father, I'm praying that today's message has greatly impacted believers. I pray that this is something that's sparked their thinking that they think about this one of the nicest blessings that you can ever have, that you never have to die. But I hope it also resonates within them that it can happen at any moment and how we need to be ready, how we need to be prepared, how we need to be people who are living the type of lives that honor you. Help us, God. Help us to be cognizant and aware that we are people that need to be numbering our days is this the last day? Help us not to be fearful of death. Help us to, like, okay, this is great. Because whether I'm going to be raptured and translated in a moment, or if I am going to face death, I am going to open my eyes on the other side of eternity and see Jesus. I'm asking God that our church can produce a lot of fruit because of this. Help us to raise up a greater number of people to pray. Last week I asked people to pray for the IFCA. Um, it was a week ago. Then did everybody pray every day when we had our IFCA week? Are people praying for our missionaries? Are pray, people praying for one another? Are they praying for their spouses? Are they praying for their children, God? I'm asking that today's message really resonates within each of us. More time in prayer, more time in service, more time. Because the world is constantly saying, I want more of your time for entertainment. I want more of your time for rest. I want more of your time to be lazy. I want more of your time to engage in my stuff. So let me, God, scream out to them with this heart cry, more for God, and may none say no. And I pray, Lord, that those that are here that don't know you, that as they perhaps heard things about hell and things about death, it'll start to open up their eyes and start to make them fearful and also want to recognize that you don't play games. If you could tell the people at northern Israel, Ephraim, that there will be no compassion, that there will be no compassion, that people here who are unbelievers will remember that and think, Lord, about the reality. That you're not joking about a place called hell where there'll be no compassion. And I pray that while they have time to turn that today will be the day, if not right now, where they just cry out, Lord, I want you in my life. Forgive me my sins. I want to believe. I want to repent and turn and go a new way. I pray, Lord, that that's happening right now. In Jesus' name, amen.